We want to praise the Lord, and we want to sing of the great things that He has done, and we want to also um, declare them in the Word. And so, excited to have you with us this morning. If you are a first-time guest or new to South Canyon, a special thank you for being here this morning, and uh, for all of our members and those that regularly attend, we're happy to see you as well. At this point, I'd like to ask if you would uh, bow your heads and pray with me before we looked to God's Word this morning. Father, we just sang about the one to whom all glory belongs. Our text this morning tells us that you have given all things to Jesus. We're mindful of the psalmist when he prays for that one who will be the great ruler and great king. He yearns for the Christ to come, the Messiah of Israel to come. And he prays, Lord, like this, that you would send your king to give justice, that you would display and bring your royal, uh, your righteousness through your royal son. Lord, we pray that Christ would indeed judge people with righteousness. He would deliver justice to the poor. That even as we sing hallelujah to him this morning, that he would bring and his coming would bring joy and gladness even to all creation that's groaning under the effects of sin. We pray for justice and Christ to work to bring a hearing ear and power to execute righteousness for the cause of the poor to give deliverance to those who are needy. We pray that those who oppose Christ would bow the knee and switch their allegiances from that of darkness and rebellion to light and salvation. We pray that Christ's word would fall on us this morning like dew that fell on the grass and the showers that water the earth. We pray that your people would be given days, long days, in which to serve you. There would be much fruit in the lives of your people in this congregation. Lord, we know that you have dominion over all things, from sea to shining sea, from every part of this world and this globe. And so, Lord, we pray that those tribes that live in the desert, those people who live in the jungle, those Uh, nomads who live in the highest steeps of Mongolia. We pray that the nations would hear of you, that we in our tithes and our offerings as we support missionaries who are going to share the gospel with those unreached people groups, that they too would fall down before you and worship you. Whether kings and presidents And rulers and dictators recognize you or not, Lord, they too are in submission to you. You've declared that government is a necessary part of the economy that we live in, this world in which we function in. And so we pray, Lord, for those that are in leadership, that they may also humble themselves before you, that they would serve you and your purposes, that they would be quick to execute justice and righteousness, We pray, Lord, that you would deliver every people from those rulers and leaders who are that you would 
work in such a way to bring glory to yourself because righteousness does indeed exalt a nation. Lord, we pray as we look to and we ask that you would speak to us through it. May your spirit indeed be present and working in our lives. We ask all this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to join me in your copy of the scriptures, whether that's digital or Maybe this will be better. Okay. If you would join me in your copy of the Scriptures and find your way to John chapter 16. This morning we're going to be looking at a very short passage for us, uh, given what we've covered so far in John's Gospel. This morning we're looking at the latter half of verse 4 all the way down through verse 15. So I'm going to read the text, and then uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at it and what it is teaching us about the Spirit, about ourselves, and about Christ. So please hear from God's Word in John chapter 4, beginning in the last half of the verse. In the Blue Bibles, you'll find that on page 902. I did not say these things to you, this is Jesus speaking, from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. Hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We pause here in this passage of John's Gospel to make a few observations quickly. Uh, when we come in, we can work through different passages of Scripture, and we do so with an effort to understand first what they said, what they say, what it meant to those who first heard it, and then what it means to us who live here today. John's gospel at this stage is a very long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. So we're breaking it up into shorter sections, but we have to keep in mind that these verses are given by Jesus to his disciples on the very night in which he was about to be betrayed in just a few hours from one of his own followers and handed over to the chief priests, 
the Jewish officials, and ultimately to Rome to be crucified. So what Jesus is saying here in this moment is so important for his disciples to understand that he literally stops moving toward the garden to tell them something. And what he tells them is important. First, he begins in verses 4 through 7. He speaks to them about his presence. He says that uh, I couldn't tell you guys these things from the beginning because, one, I was here, and look at how upsetting it has been to you to hear me constantly tell you this night that I'm leaving and you won't be able to go with me. You're distraught. You're sorrowful. You're upset. This is why I couldn't tell you this earlier. Have you ever had to keep a secret from somebody for a while? You knew that it wasn't appropriate to tell them at that moment because they wouldn't be able to respond well to it, whether they were so tired that in a moment of fatigue it would just set them off, or, or they were so already overwhelmed with other things in their lives and other stressors, you didn't want to add to it. And so you're going to tell them, but you're going to just wait a little bit longer until they can better hear it. Well, Jesus is telling them that his departure is coming. They won't be able to join him, and he's going to leave them behind. And then he says, actually, you're better off without me. Did you notice that? I mean, who would have ever thought Jesus would say something like that? He, we just sung songs about him being God, the creator before any creation existed. He clothed himself in humanity. He came to be born in a lowly manger, and then he grew up, and nobody knew him for who he was. And we talk about that, and as he's revealing to the world who he is as the light of the world and the savior of all mankind, you would think Jesus would say, I need to stay because you need me. And in fact, in verse 7, what he says is just the opposite. It's actually better for you guys if I leave. And here's why. Verses 8 through 15 give us the why. It gives us the reason. He's going away, but he's not leaving them alone. He is going to send the helper. And how does this help Jesus' followers? How is it that seeing and hearing, dining with, touching, walking with the physical Jesus is going to somehow be eclipsed by a spirit that you can't see, that you can't touch? How is that going to help them? Well, before we jump into the answer of that, looking at the three works of the Holy Spirit, I want to explain a couple terms to you because the word helper might conjure up hamburger helper. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Um, So what is this word? In the Greek, I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of language, linguistic stuff here. The Greek word is actually parakletos. Sometimes you might hear of it as the paraclete, not a pair of cleats. Those can awfully be stinky. Leave them in the garage. That's just a soccer dad talking to you there. English versions of the Bible translate this word that appears in the ESV as helper. They translate it differently. So in the King James, if you have a copy of that, you might see that the word paraclete is translated as comforter. Not that warm blanket that you want to snuggle up with this afternoon. It is not the idea of a pacifier that calms frustrated and angry and upset babies. When the King James was written, the word comforter was used to describe one who strengthened 
and supported. The Contemporary Standard Bible and the NIV in its earlier editions translated paraclete as counselor or advocate, and that gets kind of to a legal kind of terminology. He's, he's not an advisor. He's not a counselor in the psychological sense. He is an advocate in the legal sense. He's the guy that's going to defend you before the judge. He is the guy that is prosecuting the case against the sinful and the wicked. And here in this sense, the counselor or the advocate is speaking up for people. He's, he's giving them legal advice and strategy. Think of it this way. As you struggle with, am I really saved or not? Can I be saved? Can I really be born again? The Spirit is speaking to you about the law and telling you, here's how you can know. Here's what you need to know. Here's what Jesus has done. And he is the one who's capable of giving you the assurance of salvation. He explains the teaching of Jesus, the demands of the gospel and discipleship. In the ESV, we see it translated in the most generic sense of helper, and I don't think that is very helpful. In truth, that one word, paraclete, is so packed with significance and meaning that one English word cannot do it justice. And so we need to understand that when Jesus speaks of the helper, he is speaking of the third person in the Trinity. Co-equal with the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of divine Godhead, the triune Godhead. And now let's look at verses 8 through 15. I'm going to give you these three points very quickly, and then we're going to work our way through them over the next few minutes. First, we are told, or Jesus tells the disciples and us, in verses 8 through 15, three works of the Holy Spirit. So this is really... uh, more a sermon about who the Holy Spirit is than about anything else and why we need him and what he actually does. He's not a ghost like Casper, the friendly ghost, who hops out and scares us. He doesn't deliver treats and things like that. He is, as I just said, part of the triune Godhead. He is the eternal being. And Jesus describes his three works this way. First, He will convict the world of sin, verses 8 through 11. The Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the advocate, he will convict the world and will describe those three ways in which he does it. Second work of the Holy Spirit, he will guide the believer. We see that in verses 13 through 15. And the third work of the Holy Spirit is he will bring glory to Jesus. We see that in verse 14 very clearly. So it's, it's right there in the text. This is not a complicated, in-depth sermon like we might have had a couple weeks ago. This is very straightforward. The Holy Spirit has three works according to Jesus from this text. One is that he will convict the world in specific areas. Two, he will guide the believer And by doing these things, ultimately the third work is that he brings glory to Christ. So let's look at how he does this. Looking at verses 8 and 9, we're told that he will convict the world of sin, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And here's how he does it with sin. Verse 9, 
because they do not believe in me. Convict has some nuance to it, so let me unpack this. This is going to be a lot of definitions this morning. Convict has both a defensive kind of thing and a prosecutorial tone. Negatively speaking, the Holy Spirit will convict the guilty by exposing, refuting, convincing, reproving, and rebuking. Positively, he will reveal these things about ourselves. He shows us that we're sinners so that you and I might respond with shame and repentance. The world, as we've said before and as we have seen in John's gospel, describes all human beings and powers who are in rebellion against God. Anyone who doesn't want God to rule over them, who doesn't want God to set the tone for their life, and who doesn't want to dance to the rhythm of his drum, who doesn't want to submit to his authority, and anyone who actively is trying to overthrow God's rule in this world and prevent God's authority from being known, or any power that is not in submission to God. All of those and any of those are part of the world. And here's what the Spirit's work is to do. He charges the world with the crime of not believing in Jesus, according to verse 9. The world is not interested in Jesus. In spite of the fact that he's revealed himself in his word, in spite of the fact that he's revealed himself to these very people that John is writing to, You remember in John 9 when uh, we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. It wasn't the, the result of an injury, as in my case. This was a man who could not see from his birth. And when that healing took place, the Pharisees, the, the rulers of the Jewish people, had such antagonism toward Jesus, they did everything they could to, to not believe or accept that Jesus did it. So you remember, they, they interrogated the man repeatedly. They, they called him a sinner and besmirched his character. They actually expelled this healed man out of the community and the synagogue. And then they called Jesus a sinner for doing this good miracle because he had done it on the Sabbath. These guys were so determined to not give Jesus an ounce of credit. Why would they work so hard to deny what was so obvious, pun intended, what was so plain to see as a man who had been born blind who was now healed. The reason is because they did not want to believe that Jesus was the authority that they had to bow themselves to. John is writing to people who were alive in Jesus' day. He's describing people who were involved with or complicit in his crucifixion. And he's telling his readers, these people chose to die in their sin rather than believe in the one who could rescue them from it. This shows us how deep-rooted our sin problem is. In fact, how intractable it is. You cannot cure yourself from sin. You can't root it out and pull it back from your life and escape 
from the sin that is so enmeshed in the very core, the very DNA of your soul, it has to be a new birth experience. It's not reformation. It's resuscitation. You're dead, you're zombies, and you need to be made whole. You need to get a new life, a new heart. I think this is a poignant um, reminder of how serious our sin is, not just in their obstinance to reject Jesus, but that God had to send his own son into this world to save us. That shows us how significant this sin problem is and also how serious God takes it when the very most precious gift, the most sacred thing to him is the life of his own son. And when people reject that, you got to understand that God takes that seriously. I'm not talking about using God's name in vain as like a moral code. I'm talking about the fact when you and I are presented with Jesus Christ as the Messiah and we reject that, God takes it seriously. We also see in this how great our need for salvation is that only God could do for us. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, in the first sermon preached after Jesus' resurrection, declares this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And we're told in Acts 2 that when they heard these words come out of his mouth, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Friend, if that conviction, if the Spirit is already working in you this morning, convincing you that you are a sinner who needs a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior, then let me say lean into that rather than running from it. Don't just squash this and put it away and just hope you can outlast this sermon and get out from under the heat and then you can ignore it and move on. Either one of two things is always happening when the word of God goes forth. Either it's going to produce fruit in keeping with repentance or it's going to produce fruit in keeping with rebellion. That's what's at stake here. Verse 10 We're told that the Spirit is going to convict the world of unrighteousness. How is it that this is a bad thing? I mean, um, we typically think of righteousness as a good thing. And for that matter, how is this connected in any way to Jesus going back to the Father? You see that in your text? Again, remind you of verse 10 concerning righteousness. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So here's the answer. I think that the Holy Spirit is going to expose to the world Jesus' righteousness. After all, the world doesn't have righteousness inherent in ourselves. We are all sinners. And as Jesus goes to the Father, what is the vehicle that he uses to get to the Father? What, what event takes place that paves the way, that opens up the door for Jesus to go to the Father? It's the cross. And so this world is going to be confronted with their sin, and then next the Spirit is going to convince them that, in fact, Jesus is righteous, and you all rejected him, 
and he's gone to his father through the cross. He had to die in order to be exalted. And Jesus adds that this fact, that the disciples will no longer see him. This only adds to the necessity that the Spirit must come and help them minister the gospel to the world. We quickly look at verse 11, and we see there that Jesus says, Now the Spirit's third role in convicting the world is concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What does, what does Jesus mean here? Well, he's already declared back in John chapter 12 and verses 20, 31 through 33 that he judged the ruler of this world, that Satan has been cast out. And so therefore, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit's presence in this world is a sign that indeed Satan has been cast out, and it's also a sign that judgment is coming for all who are in rebellion to God. The Spirit will convince the world that Satan has been defeated and that his judgment has come. At the same time, the Spirit is convincing the world that their judgment will come if they continue to reject Christ. Let me just pause for a moment to give a word of application. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, thank you for coming. We really do want to welcome non-Christians into this room and into this space to see and hear what we do so that you understand that, yeah, it is a little strange that we would give this much time to working through a passage uh, from a book that was written 2,000 years ago. That's a little strange, but the reason we do what we do is because God has changed our hearts. He's shown us, the Spirit has shown us and convinced us that we are sinners who need Jesus' righteousness. And we, we have an unction, we have a pressure to move towards Jesus' righteousness because we also understand that there's a day of judgment coming. And so we want to offer that invitation. We want to invite you to wrestle with this for yourself. We'd be happy to talk with you. On the back of the bulletin is a, is a bunch of faces. Mine's on there as well as all of the other elders that we have. Seek out those individuals after the service or talk to the the person that's next to you. If they're a member of South Canyon, they are committed to the proclamation of this good news. They would be happy to open the scriptures with you over coffee or a meal and, and reason with you from them who God is, who Christ is, and the work that he's done on the cross. If you're here as a believer member of South Canyon, or just a Christian in our midst, let's never forget that the real evangelist in our gospel work is the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we feel a lot of pressure, as I mentioned last week, to say the right thing at the right time in the right way to the right person. And all of those, it's like a house of cards, a little tiny mistake, a tremble of the hand, a slight breeze is going to bring the whole thing down. And we feel pressure like we have to be perfect. But what does the scripture say? What does Jesus say? The one who's really evangelizing the lost is the spirit. He's the one that convicts, convinces, argues for the sin that's in them, and then pleads with them to turn from it and embrace the righteousness of Jesus. He is the one who we really need. He is the only one who can truly change people. So don't put pressure on yourself to to produce the conversion only the Spirit can do and bring.
Let's look at verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I just wonder what that conversation would have looked like, you know? What other things was he going to tell them? Was it about the future uh, of what he was going to do? Was it to elaborate more on heaven? Is it to describe uh, what the church would look like in all these thousands of years later? I mean, we, we can only guess. But what Jesus is saying is simply put that they're not ready yet to learn more But the spirit that he sends will bring help to them. And that leads us to our our second reality uh, or a second work of the Holy Spirit. Not only will he convict the world, but notice in verses 13 through 15, he will guide the believer into all truth. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus describes the helper here in these verses as the spirit of truth. And again, making the point Jesus is, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If the Spirit is going to take Jesus' own words and to carry forth those words and formulate strength and endurance and faith and perseverance in God's people, then that Spirit also has to be true. Jesus says, indeed, that is the case with the Spirit. Sadly, our unbelieving hearts don't want to hear the truth. Mindful of that old movie, Jack Nicholas on the, on the stand, right? Screaming, you can't handle the truth. And we don't want to hear the truth. I mean, we, wanna, we want tinsel, and we want decorations, and we want presents, and we want happiness in our homes. I heard a very cheesy Christmas song yesterday. It's not Christmas until everyone's crying. Okay. I mean, that's a reality of families. We get together once a year, and it's oil and water sometimes. But the reality is none of us indeed want to be distracted from the tinsel and the shine and the glitter with truth. Because truth is hard. It makes us really wrestle with how we're doing as husbands or wives. The truth is... The truth challenges us as kids who think we've pulled it yet again over our parents' eyes. They don't know what we're doing. The teachers are unaware of the things that are happening in the classroom, and we deceive ourselves into thinking, we can get by with this behavior, and it's okay. I mean, after all, if God really wanted us to do certain things, wouldn't he just make us? We don't want the truth. The Holy Spirit, though, is truth because God is truth and Jesus is truth. The Godhead, three in one, are all true. Therefore, he comes to bear witness of the truth and he will guide us into all the truth. He bears witness to Jesus. Notice John says that he doesn't bear witness to himself. And this is very important because in the day and age in which we live, um, there are many well-meaning perhaps or not informed Christians who are 
asking the Spirit to speak more to them about Himself, to give them experiences and expressions rather than to speak to them about Jesus. And Jesus says He's going to help you witness. He's not going to speak on His own authority. In fact, what is the message the Spirit is bringing with Him when He comes? Verse 13 says, Whatever He hears from the Father and the Son, He will speak. And He will declare it to you. The Spirit is not able, nor willing, nor wants it, nor capable of running rogue and just being our proxy to somehow open up doors for us to know what our future is. Will the person I marry have green eyes or blue eyes? Will I go to this college or that college? The Spirit is not some kind of talisman that we can manipulate in order to get answers. His whole purpose is to guide us in the ways that are true. And what is all the truth that He's supposed to lead us and guide us into? Is it every aspect of science? Understanding? We've got some mind students here. He, no, the Spirit's purpose isn't to tell us all things about how the world originated and how everything functions in the cosmos. The all the truth, those parentheses, easier to do when I have a headpiece on. Those things are all the truths that relate to who Jesus is and what Jesus has said about himself. This is the purpose of the Spirit. And so this really has to check some of us. Our impulses are to have like this second baptism of the Holy Spirit where we can do miraculous healings, we can speak in tongues, we can have some uh, emotional, ecstatic experience. And Jesus is saying His coming is to teach you about me by using all the things that I've said about myself and the Father said about me and to keep pointing you back to that. You're going to lose a teacher in me, but you're going to gain a better teacher in the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. He describes that Spirit's work in the life of the believers as a guide. He's going to shape the understanding of the disciples about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Jesus declared that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth in verse 13. And and this may sound like I'm playing word games here, but I'm not. The truth that the Spirit is guiding us is, is not into every truth, but into all the truth about Jesus. Singular focus, one mission, to convince you and I we need Jesus. He is who he says he is. He's our only hope to get out of here alive And he is the truth. That's the Spirit's purpose. Notice also that the Holy Spirit, according to verse 13, is not independent of Jesus. He's not going to speak on his own authority. And so when we try to extract, exploit, or manipulate the Spirit to any other outcome, it will not work. And in fact, it is not consistent with Jesus' own teaching. We are told that the Holy Spirit will only speak what Jesus, what he has heard, and that implies from Jesus and the Father. And I I just wanted to add this component to it. Philip Jensen, in his book, The Coming of the Holy Spirit, states that feelings are irrelevant in the Holy Spirit's coming. Now, uh, I understand that there's Pentecostal, charismatic churches around us here in Rapid City. They were that way when I was in Baltimore and Philadelphia and Indiana. 
Wisconsin. And I'm not trying to poke a bear or create conflicts. I know that people sincerely believe that there's an expectation for a Christian to achieve some level of growth in their life where they have some otherworldly experience. And so I want to be gentle when I say this, but I want you to hear me clearly. Is there any emotion attached to the Spirit's coming in this text? Is there any expression from Jesus, any hint from Jesus that when the Spirit comes, people will be running around laughing, crying, jumping, dancing, shouting? Even if we go to Acts chapter 2, where that day comes, 50 days after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Spirit is poured out on the apostles. And in Acts 2 and verses 4 through 11, when that moment came, what do we see happening? We see that the disciples begin preaching. They're doing exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would enable them to do, is to declare truth about himself to others in a winsome, compelling, urgent way. Yes, they are speaking in languages that they hadn't practiced, they hadn't gone to school for, and everyone is astounded by that. They're like, these are Galileans. We can tell from their dialect. It's like, hey, I'm from Virginia versus I'm from New England. We can hear it. Most of you all think I'm from the South, and I think you're all from Minnesota. Okay? We hear these things. And so these guys are in Jerusalem for a Jewish feast day, and they're hearing Greeks, Parthians, all these different nationalities, all these different tongues. They're hearing things pertaining. Let's just go and look at this. Acts chapter 2. I want you to be convinced of the Scriptures and not me. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, all the way through verse 11. We won't read it all. I want to just pick up with that point that I was just making. Verse 8. These men are asking, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia. On and on that list goes all the way down through the end of verse 10. They're, they're making the point, we're from different countries, we speak different languages. French, German, Spanish, English, etc., etc. He goes, he goes on in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Here's the reality. The Spirit's role is to do what we can't do, convict people of the rightness, the truthfulness of God's Word about their sin condition, their need for Him. Then the Spirit is the one who's able to guide believers into doing the work that they are sent out to do to share Christ and to know with conviction who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't, what Jesus is about and what Jesus isn't interested. So when you read your Bible as a believer, the Holy Spirit kind of acts like an interpreter. He's, he's a light. 
in exposing the Word in a way that makes it compelling to us, that grips us. And so you might read the same book over and over a hundred times, and every time you read it, you're learning something different, not just facts, but like, oh, I need to be more patient in the way I speak. Oh, no, this time it means I need to be more bold in sharing the gospel. Now, this time it means I need to be giving money to the church. And it's all from the same book. How is that possible? Because he's teaching us all the things that relate to Jesus. And now we find out that the Holy Spirit is going to do much more than that. He's also going to bring about conviction of things that Jesus has said that will come to pass in the future. And this means, as I understand it, that Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit is, is waiting to give you and I some vision of things yet to come, as though we now become some prophet and God has spoken to us directly, and then we can stand apart from Scripture, and we can stand as an authority and say, thus saith the Lord. I'm not saying, I don't believe Jesus is saying God has given us gifts to speak the words of God alone, extemporaneous, outside, apart from the Bible. Jesus says he's going to guide you in the things that are yet to come. That means Jesus has already talked to the disciples. Now, John's gospel is not exhaustive. It's not only in all the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. We have a a mosaic from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then even as the apostles write the epistles, the letters to these other churches throughout the rest of the New Testament, we find that they're cluing us in on private conversations that weren't mentioned in the Gospels. And they're telling us more things about Jesus, and they're applying it particularly to situations and circumstances. Jesus is telling us that The Spirit is going to be a guide to every believer. And finally, as we look here in verse 14, that the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, will glorify Jesus. He will take all these things, everything the Father has given to the Son, the Spirit's going to appropriate them, and He's going to use them to be functioning as a big mirror, reflecting back to the goodness and the righteousness and the beauty of Christ. When He guides the disciples into all the truth about Jesus. He's guiding them into Jesus' glory. And again, it is impossible for the Holy Spirit to add anything to the message of Jesus. He's only going to speak what he has already heard. So if you're looking for something new, the Spirit, it's not coming from that Spirit. It's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's not coming from the paraclete, the helper that Jesus is sending. What is the truth? Here's the truth. Here's the message. You and I need Jesus. The singular function of the Holy Spirit is to show us that need. Jesus has made it clear. You guys have no idea what's about to happen. I've tried to tell you and I've tried to prepare you. Some things you can't handle right now. But this Spirit, sent from the Father by my word, It's going to come to you is going to make sense of all of this. The Spirit is the reason why Christians can lose everything in their lives. Possessions, employment, loved ones. And still say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
That's the Spirit. And this is what Jesus is promising us. And notice, if you look very carefully, Jesus says that he will take what is mine, he will declare it to you. He's not going to speak of his own authority. He's going to only speak what he hears, and he's going to say it to you. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus has made it very clear. He's leaving. He was with them. But the Spirit is coming, and the Spirit will be in them. There's a difference. This is the heart that Jeremiah speaks of, that God speaks of in the Old Testament. That people are so stubborn that until they get a new heart, they cannot obey. Jesus is working from the outside. He's showing us a model of what it means to be righteous and holy. But the Spirit actually comes and indwells in us so that our hearts are indeed changed. And now we actually have an interest in going down this pathway. Before, it was just looking like legalism to us. Either I'm going to do this to get something or I have to do this because this is the way. And you're dragging me, kicking and screaming. Now, the gospel conversion that the Holy Spirit brings changes all that. It's no longer about rules. It's no longer about obedience in the sense of force to. It's all, I get to, I want to, I have the opportunity to. There's a big difference. In John chapters 14 through 16, Jesus declared that the Spirit is God's unite, is united with God, equal with the Father and in the Son. And yet the Spirit is going to divide people into one of two groups. Those who have the Spirit of truth and those who don't. Now, we praise the Lord that we are sitting here today in this room with a completed Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, one book that tells one story. We have advantages and privileges that the disciples did not have. How many times when you read through the Gospels, is it, is it written, and they didn't understand. They didn't get it. And they had Jesus, and they still didn't get it. Now you've seen why it's better that Jesus goes than for him to stay? Because you and I have the full picture. We have got all of God's Word. And thankfully, also, we not only have an entire Bible, but we also have the best interpreter and teacher ever seen and ever known in the Holy Spirit. He's going to explain it all to us. He's going to guide us in the paths that we need to go. And by doing this, as our lives are changed in conformity to Christ, and as we grow in our understanding and our obedience to abide in Him, the Spirit is bringing glory to Jesus. So as we close... We are reminded that Jesus' glorification came through a cross by way of a manger. It didn't come from a throne. Only after going to the cross could the Spirit be poured out upon the disciples. Why? Why only then? Because the Spirit's work is to bear witness to the crucified and risen Christ. And as the disciples, as you and I bear witness, as we testify, as we declare the things that the Bible says about Jesus, it is the Spirit who convinces people of their sin, of Jesus' righteousness, of the judgment to come. 
And it is the Spirit alone who can bring life to dead hearts so that they love Jesus and can walk in his ways. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning not to forget that we live in a world that seeks to silence Christian witness. And perhaps the greatest danger that Christians in America face is that we live in a somewhat safe and Christianized culture. And so we wrongly believe that persecution is over for us. Or we wrongly believe that the world doesn't actually hate Jesus' followers. And because we feel secure, we actually stop sharing the gospel. Lord, we pray that whatever it is that you see the need for each and every heart, every mind, every set of ears and pair of eyes that is seen in hearing this today, that you would work in such a way to convict us and by your grace to guide us and by your goodness to bring glory to Jesus. We pray all this in his name.